Hey, it's Andrew, and I wanted to thank you for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. Did you know that you can subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast on Apple Podcasts or Pocket Casts or wherever you get your podcasts to have new episodes delivered to your feed twice a week on Wednesday and Friday? All you have to do is pick up your phone, navigate to your podcast app, and search for Door County or Door County Pulse podcast and click subscribe. If you're a longtime listener or if this is your first episode, we hope you enjoy the Door County Pulse podcast. Friend, there was a friend of ours named Ralph Leffler who was boiling fish for Steve. And I was standing by. And they used to go out because he heated it with wood. So they'd go up, they'd be this in the fall, <coughs> and they'd be up on top cutting wood. So while they were cutting wood, they came down, put all their chainsaws and uh, whatever they were using to haul the wood with, and put it all right by the door, right, by the, right outside the door. Well, they put a gas can near the kerosene can. So little Lefty, when he did the fish boil, he used the gas instead of the kerosene. It went up like a small nuclear holocaust. It blew fish and, and bones and stuff into people's sweaters. We had to get the dry cleaners to, you know, to, to make them feel good about it. It was incredible. It just blew. He threw all that much gasoline on that fire instead of kerosene. It just blew the fish and everything right out of the pot. Hello and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast, where each week we talk with the writers and editors of the Peninsula Pulse about the stories you can find in this week's issue. I'm Andrew Clyden, and I'm joined today by Miles Danhausen, writer and editor for the Peninsula Pulse. How's it going, Miles? It's going good, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Uh, we've got a couple things to talk about this week. Uh, we might as well start with some news, uh, and then uh, we'll we'll just go from there. Uh, Sturgeon Bay has a plan for the West Waterfront Promenade. Yes. Uh, not a final plan, Not nothing approved yet, but they have... Uh, it's the West Waterfront Parcel, the parcel we've talked so much about right. regarding both the granary and the high watermark. And they came up with a, the, the advisory committee came up with a kind of concept plan for it that was very kind of big block. Here's generally what we want to see in this whole West Side area and generally where we think things should go. But then this plan is like much more detailed and specific of like, here's something we can base engineering off of and an actual build off of. Is this um, an evolution of the proposal that we saw last year? Yeah. Okay. So this is more like a granule, granular um, segment of that plan. So this particular plan that was unveiled the other night really wasn't like a comprehensive plan of the entire West Waterfront. It's all about the waterfront promenade because the city has the money in the budget and is going to move forward. They want to move forward quickly on just kind of that first 10, 15 feet of the waterfront area. Maybe actually, probably more than that. It's probably more like the first 50 feet. So where those tugs are on the west side, just making that more of an inviting public space for pedestrians with benches and like maybe like a stone, tapered stone kind of bench area over there, some plantings, uh, like an overlook area, and kind of open that up to the water and to the public. So the idea is to have that part done by the end of this year, probably like late October. Did you see any sort of major changes from the proposal that we got last year? Or was this just really fleshing out the same concept that we saw? There's one major change in that. If you remember, the 
the kind of controversial part of last year's decision was that they were going to, they the ad hoc committee wanted to move the grain elevator to the other side of that property. It now sits where like, it's kind of like stationed in its original location up on blocks kind of. And then that advisory plan called for it to be moved closer to the Oregon Street Bridge on the edge of the property. And that is kind of the sticking point here. David Shannock, who is on the, that advisory committee, said, you know, what's the point of all our work if we're going to do all this? And then when the plan gets written, it's different. And the, this is, we did this, we came up with this plan through hours and hours and hours of community engagement and a lot of time put in by this committee. And that's getting thrown out the window. Now, this hasn't been decided by the city. So to say like the city threw it out is not quite fair yet, but that's the way that plan looks. Um, that's how they have it written up. So I can right. see members of that committee being frustrated. And I'm sure this is not the last time we're going to hear about it because it never will be. <laughs> so, okay, br break this down for me one more time, just in case I'm not, I'm not following. Uh, the original plan that we saw last year had, a, had the granary in a different location than the granary is physically in right now, which Correct. would have meant another move for the granary. Yes. The the place that the granary is in right now is its original location, correct? Correct. Okay. So in this current plan as it's proposed, there have been some concessions made uh, that have kind of changed the layout of that specific area, right? A little bit. And one of the reasons might be, it wasn't really articulated, but the city agreement with the Sturgeon Bay Historical Society on the granary calls for the granary to be back in its original location. The Historical Society did that. They executed that side of it. If the city wants it in a different location, they have to pay for it. Right. So if they want to move it, now they have to pay to move the granary. They have to pay for new pilings, which are driven into the ground, and then the granary would sit on that because it's filled like that. You have to put all these pilings in. So it, it may just be more costly for the city and that might not be an expense the city wants to take on. So maybe that's why it would be planned to stay in its current spot. What um, What is the, the sticking point here? If the granary is in the spot that the historical foundation wants it at and this new proposal has it in that same spot, uh, does that mean that we're finally moving past the, the granary issue or is there still... I'd imagine there'll be a, a lot of discussion about this. Okay. So there is an open house on Monday, February 10th for the public to take a look at this plan and give some of their feedback and comments. That is going to be at City Hall in the community room. I'd imagine there will be a pretty good turnout for that. It goes from 5 to 7 p.m. I'd be shocked if it only goes from 5 to 7 p.m. And it'll be a chance for people to inspect the plans a little more closely, ask some of these questions themselves. And I'd imagine, based on whatever feedback they get out of that, you might have a clearer picture sure. on where this will end up. Uh, were there renderings released as a part of this proposal? Yep. And, and those will, people can see those in this week's Pulse and in on DoorCountyPulse.com. It's also on the city's website. If you go to the homepage, the SturgeonBayWI.org, right on the homepage, one of the main links on that homepage takes you to that West Waterfront plan. Cool. Yeah, I, I'm excited to see the updated renderings because when we first saw the proposal, it really was kind of trying to create this center point for the community, yeah. right? To create this kind of, uh, this space that 
was indicative of the maritime history of Sturgeon Bay, but also created a lot of community space and uh, was both historically significant, but also a, a draw for the community and for tourists and stuff like that. So I'm really excited to see what actually happens with this. Uh, and it's good to hear that the the plan is kind of progressing. Is there anything else that we need to look forward to uh, in the coming weeks on this? Um, I would just say I don't want this to get lost in that, you know, making it all about the granary again, because the promenade looks really cool and the artist renderings and finally having something progress in that spot makes you pretty excited for what might happen in Sturgeon Bay. You combine right. that with the signage improvements. You combine that with the plans for Graham Park that we talked with Pam Seiler on a podcast recently about. You could just have a much more activated, engaging waterfront, more akin to what some of the smarter cities nationwide have done, or right. even large cities like Chicago has, in the last few years, made their whole riverfront a much more inviting public space. Mm -hmm. And Sturgeon Bay is hopefully going in that direction. Right. So another thing that we were talking about just before we started recording, you had mentioned that there was some proposed legislation regarding dyslexia. Where was that and what was that about? Yeah, so there is a, a small group of individuals in Door County at a couple of different schools who have been advocating for reform in the way that we teach reading, uh, particularly in regards to um, students with dyslexia and dysgraphia and other uh, different conditions. And one of those is Carrie Bauman, um, a parent at Gibraltar School, whose son has struggled with both of those and, and then some. And... She was originally just sort of angry at the school for not being able to teach her child to read and pushed the school to do things differently and slowly learned that it's not necessarily a Gibraltar problem, but like the way we approach reading in general in the state. And so she became an advocate for change at the state level to try and get the State Department of, of, of Education to start recognizing dyslexia as a real problem. We've heard that term. I, I would imagine most people have heard that term dyslexic or dyslexia before and know generally what it is. But what I've learned in talking to her is that the state hasn't recognized it in any sort of tangible mm. ways. And so this effort was to get the, the legislature and the governor to sign on to a bill that would create a guidebook for a, what they call a dyslexia guidebook that just essentially is the state acknowledging that dyslexia exists and that teachers have to take this into account and have this in mind and, and, and recognize this condition and, right. and try to help students who have it. In the past, since they didn't recognize it, a lot of schools said, well, that's, we're, we're not responsible to do the extra work that goes into teaching a child with dyslexia. So a lot of these kids get left behind and they never learn to read or at least don't learn to read well. And if you don't learn to read well, the statistics by fourth grade, if you haven't learned to read, your odds of being incarcerated in your lifetime, of not getting a job, of having so many other bad outcomes are just extremely high. Like roughly half of the, the inmates in, I, I think it's actually higher than that. I want to say it's like more than half of inmates in American prisons are illiterate, functionally illiterate. So you just think of that like that. If, if you could address that one area, you could maybe make a huge change in a lot of people's lives. Right. So Carrie has advocated very strongly for this. Um, I've talked to Joel Kitchens, the state assemblyman, and he said specifically that Carrie is just a, a tenacious fighter who really 
opened his eyes to it. And I've talked to school board members who said she just changed the way we're looking at reading education. And now she has helped. She's part of the reason that they have now changed state legislation. It's a really cool, inspiring story. I'll be writing a lot more about her um, in the philanthropy issue and a couple of articles coming up, both her and other parents who have been fighting this battle and uh, spending a lot of their own money and a lot of their own time to try and uh, change the way we teach reading. And right. that could have long-term impacts for a lot of people. So Carrie was actually down at the Capitol today with her son, Grady, uh, as the governor signed that bill and got to meet the governor and kind of be a part of some historical legislation. Yeah. One thing that I find in like public education, one of the big challenges when you're talking about uh, getting institutions to recognize things as actual disorders, that's the biggest hurdle when it comes to actually trying to implement new programming, right? Mm -hmm. So, and not only is it like at an institutional level, but there's a cultural level of it too. Like I, I would probably guarantee that for most people out there, the majority of the time that they are hearing the word dyslexia or dyslexic or is used like um, as a way to describe a faux pas rather than an actual disorder. Like if, hmm. you, if you're reading something out loud and you flub your words, a lot of times people will be like, oh, I'm a little dyslexic and they move on. Yeah. But that's not what that is, right? Right. Dyslexia is not, uh, it's not a thing that can happen. It is a thing that you actually deal with well, or every time that you read. Yeah, pretty much forever. Yeah. And so finding a way to like at the institutional level is great, but also just cultural awareness too. And uh, we've come a long way in terms of even in just the last 20 years in terms of like the language that we use to describe things and not using certain words, especially words that have to deal with mental illness to describe regular occurrences. Right. Um, I, it, but the work continues in that way, getting people to understand that disorders are real and that uh, they have uh, much bigger effects than you might think right away. Yeah, I mean, I never thought of myself as fortunate or lucky in terms of learning to read. It, it's something that came naturally to me that I immediately loved and was passionate about. And then when you talk to some of these parents and talking to the kids who deal with this, it, it creates so much self-doubt. So it, it affects your whole person in that all right, I can't read. Everyone else is learning to read. They all seem to get it. I don't get it. I'm an idiot. I'm, I'm stupid. I'm never going to get it. And the, the self-confidence just goes down the tubes. Yeah. And then how are you supposed to learn and have confidence to do so many other things or to try other things? And then when you, what one teacher told me is essentially first through third grade, you are learning to read. After that, you're reading to learn. So everything else comes from the fact that you already know how to read at third grade. So now that's what enables you to learn everything else. And if you can't read, I mean, how frustrating must everything be? Right. You and have to work 10 times harder than your peers just to stay at the same level as them. And statistics show that that might be anywhere from 15 to 25% of learners who don't grasp onto like the way that we traditionally teach reading. And what one educator told me was, Reading is not a natural act. It's not something we're born with. Humans don't haven't instinctively, like we instinctively breathe. You know, we instinctively listen. Right. We create language to some degree instinctively, but we don't, reading has got to be taught. And that is something that kind of struck me because like I said, it came natural to me. But then you think, I, I happen to be somebody who captures or there's, um, absorbs the traditional way that we teach it. Yeah. But a quarter of us don't. And 
we're not doing anything about that. And that's 60% of Wisconsin students are not proficient in reading, according to the latest state report card. So it's not individual kids. It's not one family with a dyslexic kid. It is the system failing on a much wider scale. Right. Well, and it's one of those things, too, that can be hard to detect from what I understand as well. Because if you've got a student who is is not catching on, the likelihood of them to just kind of like sink to the back of the class and not point out that they're not catching on rises. So it gets harder and harder to detect when a student is not actually being able to keep up with the with the reading. And we don't screen because you don't want to... And there's some credence to what t- schools do. I don't want to just slam schools or slam our education program. Um, there is... I understand why they would say like, well, we don't want to screen a kid in first grade and then label him or her as dyslexic or having a problem when it might just be that they're a few months behind or they just it just hasn't clicked yet because that does happen. But the problem is if you don't screen for dyslexia, if you don't start diagnosing that until third grade or fourth grade, which is what most schools do, well, you're already two years behind and you're right at that point where everything changes in education, going back to that whole like learning to read versus reading to learn, you're right on the precipice of that. And that's when you find out you have a disorder and now you got to start doing something about it. Right. You're, and so parents just feel desperately behind at that point. And it's, it's a, a story for a whole other podcast, but what parents have to do to try and, and catch their kid up and, and the dire straits they're put in in that situation. You know, watching Carrie do what she's done and Grady do what he's done. It's been really inspiring to see. And yeah, we'll be talking a lot more about it. Uh, one more thing before we take a break. Last week, we announced that Pond Hockey was moving to Sister Bay this year, and uh, it has moved over. And uh, how has that gone? You've been in and out of the office constantly over the last week just trying to figure this thing out. But it seems like things are going really well. Yeah, uh, it's been great. The cooperation with Bailey's Harbor in helping us get the word out and us trying to make sure everyone knows all the things that are still going on in Bailey's Harbor this weekend bands at the brewery, the farmer's market on Saturday, things like that. But then also Sister Bay helping us get the word out to people in that area and making sure restaurants and bars are aware that the tournament's there. And so they're open and welcoming to um, potentially a lot more visitors. And then boots on the ground. It's just been trying to get those, try to make a last second ice rink set up in Sister Bay in a few days. <laughs> yeah. We, we talked a little bit about what you were predicting would be different uh, in Sister Bay compared to how we've done it on Kangaroo Lake. Uh, but in practice, how, how different actually was it to get the rink set up? Uh, I, I'll tell you on Saturday when, when we when we them all together. Last night, uh, we were out there flooding. I was out there till about one in the morning. The We had a crew going throughout the entire night. There's some guys who are working really hard who were there from 6 p.m. till 6 a.m. this morning, just putting coat after coat. You know, you just put thin layers of water down. And then once it freezes, you put another thin layer of water down. You just keep doing that to build up this thick base of ice. And we're doing that with uh, trying to create six rinks. So that's a lot of flooding. Unfortunately, we haven't had those deep freezes. Like people might generally think, oh, it's plenty cold enough in this winter. Like, why don't we have great ice all the time if, if you're a hockey or a fan or a skater or a broomball player. But the problem is you really need the temperatures to drop like below 15, below 10 degrees to make a, to have a really solid ice making weather because then the, the water freezes really fast and you can keep throwing down coats. We haven't had that. We've had a lot of like below freezing, but 
25 and sunny is almost impossible to lay down ice. So that's been the problem. So la- that's why last night we were working on it all through the night just to try and, and make sure it happens. And then uh, assembling, we usually on the Kangaroo Lake, we just plow the snow to the side of the rink and that's the boards. Yeah. Well, up there we don't have the snow to use, so we are making boards for to surround these rinks out of two by sixes to create all these rinks. You know, it's a lot of changing communication <laughs> and making sure that everyone knows exactly where to go, where to be, when to be there, redoing the schedule. Jordan Burris has been working her tail off to try and take what usually is a 8.45 or 7.45 a.m. to 3 o'clock in the afternoon tournament over 12 to 15 rinks and condense that to five or six rinks right. and spread it out over the whole day into the night and then communicate all that information to the teams. So, yeah, there's a lot of moving parts. Uh, Jordan, Brian, Fitzgerald are, are doing the the bulk of this. But, yeah, a lot of communication. How many years has Pond Hockey been going on? This is year number seven. Okay, so you guys have had six really great years to kind of lock in your schedules and get things working really well. So I, I, I don't think that you can understate how much of a challenge it is to totally shift gears and do it completely differently after six years of doing it, you know, pretty smoothly. Yeah, I mean, this is... We do a bunch of events. We do the half marathon. We do the bike rides. We do the beer festival. This is by far the hardest one, even before. But now, changing the venue and, and doing all this stuff at the last minute, it, it makes it much more difficult to pull off. And as you do all this, like it's one thing to have changed with the half marathon, but you're like, all right, great. I'm going to spend the day in Peninsula State Park and have this beautiful day. Yeah, It's quite another thing to do all this work and be, I'm doing all this so I can stand outside in the cold for 14 hours right. <laughs> and watch but, other people play hockey. You know, but it is really day, fun. It's really cool to see the community come out. So it's, yeah, it is worth it. It's worth it because it's fun, but it also, I mean, it brings a ton of people up here, right? I mean, yeah. how many teams do you have registered for this year? Uh, there's about 50 teams. and How many people on each team? Most teams will bring about seven. Okay. So seven times 50, and then, I don't know, you probably even just make it, what, like, 15 times 50 because everybody who's on a team is probably going to bring at least one other person yep. with them. Usually that's the way yeah. it works. So plenty of people coming up uh, and this is both a mixture of local teams but then a lot of people from outside the county coming up too, right? Yep. Uh, it, it is mostly outside the county. Okay. Uh, a lot of Milwaukee, Chicago, Madison, uh, Fox Valley teams come up. There's a few local teams, maybe like a handful of local teams. And then, you know, we've gonna, we're going to have a shuttle going back. Sister Bay has organized their, their summer shuttle is now just going to operate and take people to downtown bars and restaurants and up to the Piggly Wiggly if they need to and back to the rink so people can just go easily back and forth between games if they have like a four-hour gap or if fans just want to come and go. And then uh, we also, some guys came out and groomed a little fat bike trail in, around the sports complex. So if people want to go and try out a fat bike. Nordor Sport and Cyclery is going to bring up a few that people can just try out. So if you've never fat biked before, we're bringing it right to downtown Sister Bay, basically. So uh, there'll be a lot of things going on. It should be a really fun day. Great. Uh, we're going to take a break, uh, but then when we come back uh, over this last week, we lost another Door County legend. Digger DeGroot passed away this week, and uh, we want to talk a little bit about his life and his legacy, uh, and we'll jump into that when we get back. Everybody up here had many more nicknames than when I went to high school in Green Bay. There were nicknames then, but not like some of the nicknames we had were in the in sports. We might call a guy on a team. Uh, my friend John Baumgarten was known as Bungie on the team, but but he wasn't known as Bungie right. going down the hall. Or girlfriends wouldn't call him Bungie. 
freaking coach that <coughs> gave me the nickname Digger. I hated it at first. I was a sophomore in high school. By the time I got out of high school, a lot of people didn't know my real name. They still think I'm two people. Okay, we are back. So this is uh, Wednesday as we are recording this, Wednesday the 5th of February. Uh, I heard that Digger passed away last night. Was that that's when he passed away, correct? That's when I saw right. that you yes. posted about yeah. it. Okay. Um so Digger, for people who don't know, maybe Miles, it would be behooven to view to give kind of a lowdown on who he is. I know most locals know him and, and most tourists who pass through Fish Creek probably know him as well. But just give us kind of the rundown on, on who Digger was. Yeah, Digger's I mean it's a legend. Uh he his name is James Digger de Groot. Most people don't know him as anything but Digger. Right. I certainly didn't for the longest time. And yeah, or fact, one of his many nicknames like Howard Swamico or <laughs> Al Goma. Al Goma. Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, so he was most famous for Digger's Grill, uh, a little kind of drive-in style restaurant in Fish Creek across from Peninsula State Park, across from the entrance there, what's now Wild Tomato. He ran that for 22 years, and when he opened it up, the some friends of his gave him a sign that said, no shirts, no suits, no ties, no rednecks. And some business owners maybe wouldn't dare put that in their window. He put it in the window, put it on his t-shirts. He loved it. And he, he was just, he just thought it was fun. And then, so he would, he'd put other little slogans like that up in the signs in the window, signs on the walls of his restaurant. And, you know, it was just like a burger, corn dog, pizza place, good food, not, nothing like the kind of spectacular level that people do today, but a great place for families and teenagers. Um, it, I can't tell you how many times growing up that it was just like leaving school in the in the fall when they were still open and be like, yeah, I'm going down to Diggers and we're right. going to meet at Diggers. And always being jealous of the Fish Creek kids who just could go to Diggers any day like <clears throat> and spend so much time there. You're always sort of jealous of the people who work there because they always seem to have a lot more fun than a lot of other jobs. And, I mean, he was just always a character, yeah. riding, driving his moped around Fish Creek and keeping tabs on things. People called him the mayor of Fish Creek. Yeah, I, I knew Digger a little bit before I joined here at The Pulse, but I had the privilege of getting to interview him a couple different times for mm -hmm. Filmworks. Um, so I got to hear a bunch of his stories, which was really great. But I also heard a lot of people talk about Digger, too, because he was he was really well known as like not only just kind of a beacon of the community, but also as a prankster and uh, as, you know, somebody who had his hat in so many different areas. Like, I believe he was a dishwasher at the English Inn for a while. Um, he was on the board at Peninsula Players for a long time. So yeah. we got to know uh, all of that. So he had his hand in the hospitality industry and the, the theaters up here. But then he also spent a lot of time at the Fish Creek Visitor Center. So if you went in looking for information on Fish Creek, he was your guy. Yeah. Um, he, he just really was immersed in the community in so many different ways. He bartended at the Omnibus. He bartended at the Bayside. Like those ties to, to a couple of those places is pretty amazing. And you touched on like the jokes and the pranks. Most famously, maybe, is when he decided to jump over. He decided, I'm going to jump over five cars in downtown Fish Creek. And people kind of challenged him to do it and kind of pushed it forward. And sure enough, he, they start promoting it. And he lines it all up. He's going to jump five cars on his bike on the Fish Creek Hill on the 4th of July, 1973. Hollis Baldy Bridenhagen, the longtime sheriff, goes up. He blocks off traffic on the highway, which 
It's kind of funny to think of now because A, it's a sheriff blocking off traffic so some random bar fly can try and jump six cars. Like, there's no safety mechanisms right. in place. And then I, I put on events all the time. You need like 40 permits to get a side road closed, let alone the Fish Creek Hill. So he blocks off traffic. A bunch of people come out to, to watch this thing happen. A bunch of people sitting on the roof of the CNC Supper Club at the time. And Digger comes down and he jumped five cars. They were matchbox cars. Right. <laughs> and he jumped them off this tiny little ramp. And after he did the jump, he had some guys waiting in a pen player's cargo van and he just rode right into the cargo van and they took off before anybody could get ticked off at him. So, Well, and the fact that they were matchbox cars was conveniently left out of any like news reportings of oh, yeah. this incident as oh, well. Yeah. So there were definitely headlines written at the time about Digger jumping five cars. <laughs> He's, uh, you know, just thinking of stuff like that. I, and in talking to people over the last 24 hours and talking to his family, w- one thing that we just keep coming back to is that that was just a different era, the 70s in Door County. And the fact that people just didn't take everything so seriously. Up here, they do. I mean, I, I actually was thinking about this today. If somebody came and proposed to open a place that was exactly Digger's Grill, but Digger's had never existed, I'm sure there would be a little bit of a backlash the way that people nitpick every business opening here and speculate on whether it's a good idea or not and try to work that into whether something should get approved or not. But I bet you a lot of people would show up and be like, well, we don't need a tacky place like that. We, you know, we don't need a, a small grill serving fried corn dogs. That's just, we're, it's going to be like the Dells. Right. I can totally see that happening in the, the ridiculous Facebook conversation. I shouldn't call it Facebook conversation because there's no such thing. It's oxymoronic. But the Facebook comments, anyway, would be crazy. So... It's, it was an era before everyone, like I said, took everything so seriously. People, people just liked having a lot more fun, I think. Right. And gosh, I'd, you know, I'd love to see people do that again. Yeah. And I feel like, I feel like pretty much everybody up here kind of has a digger story. That's the other thing yeah. too. Like when we. I mean, you're new here and it's crazy, right? Right. Yeah. I knew him probably my first week being up here full time because I worked at the bank. Right. So I, I got to see Digger and talk to him and, you know, he would come in and he would just chat with the people at the bank and you'd get to know this like really charming and fun guy who would just come in. And then, of course, you know, getting the job here and learning more about him and then being able to talk to him one on one. He just he was such a cool character to to learn from and just to hear stories from. He was definitely like a window into the past in that way. Yeah. Uh, he was also the mayor of Fish Creek, right? Do you know that story? Oh yeah. <laughs> I like you you uh, when you posted about him on the Pulse Facebook page, that's how you started it out. Tell me the the mayor of Fish Creek well, story. Well, supposedly it started when um somebody had sent a a message to or s- sent mail to the post office and addressed it to the mayor of Fish Creek. And so they just like jokingly, I think, gave it to Digger and said, "Well, this must be for you." And he, of course, latches onto that. Digger loved being the center of attention. Everybody said, like, he loved an audience. He loved, he, he loved having Diggers because his name was up in lights on a sign, you know. Um, he was kind of a wannabe actor who actually was an actor, did act and plays at Peninsula Players Theater and loved the theater, but always liked being the center of things. And, yeah, they, so he took that moniker and ran with it. <laughs> and so when he was roasted, they had this great sign that said, like, Mayor of Fish Creek and, 
And he was. I mean, not in any official capacity, right. but he was as close to the mayor as anybody could possibly be. Right. Uh, do you know the Do you know the story behind his name, Digger? Um, I I read about it, and it I I think I was told that it came from playing high school football, and he was just sitting bored on the sideline and was digging into the ground with a stick, and they just called him Digger. Yeah, you know, when I talked to him about it and I asked him, I don't know if I got that story, which is I think the other fun thing about Digger is you could maybe at like five different people could ask him. Yeah. the same story and he'd give you a different story about it. Yeah. Um, but the way he explained it to me was that, you know, back then everybody had a nickname. Like nobody was called their name. They just right. all had nicknames. Like this guy was Lefty and this guy was Thursday and that was just their names for, and sometimes for just no reason at all. Yeah. Like, for whatever reason, he was Digger and like... <laughs> I mean, I just think I feel, I've said this before about other characters, but it's another one of those cases where you just feel really lucky that you got a chance to to know the guy over the years and have some real conversations. I mean, there's some people that you just have in passing, but by virtue of this job and the film work that we do, you actually get to spend hours with somebody like this. And I've used him so many times there'd be a story and I'd call somebody, I'm like, hey, who would I who would I call to know to ask about this? They're like, well, my digger probably knows. Give him a yeah, call. Sure. And that would happen so many times, and inevitably I would. And he would just pick up the phone and just, I, I'd get the answer, but I'd also get 40 minutes of something I didn't ask for and loved it. And when I got off the phone talking to Digger, I'd almost always immediately just go to somebody else and be like, wait till you hear what Digger just told me. Did you know so-and-so or did you know this happened? And it would be something from 35 years ago in some crazy story that I had never heard before. And a lot of times I think I've heard them all and it's nowhere close. And I, I just love that about those conversations with Digger. Me being from Egg Harbor, he always ripped on Egg Harbor. Like, yeah. Long before I came along. But he always ripped on Egg Harbor. And I, I was looking back through emails today with him and almost every single one, he snuck in a, an Egg Harbor jab um, just for kicks. He just loved doing it. In fact, after his roast, he had ripped on Egg Harbor so bad that he he sent a letter to the editor apologizing for ripping on Egg Harbor so much. <laughs> he's like, I didn't mean to be that mean. <laughs> but um, but yeah, he just, he had a way of making you feel special and important when he talked to you. And, you know, growing up here and getting to know him, and he's one of those guys I look up to as like what Door County should be and, and how we should all kind of take ourselves less seriously and have a little more fun. Okay, I think that that's just about going to do it for us this week. Keep an eye on the Peninsula Pulse website for the, the time being. I'm sure we'll post stories and stuff like that mm -hmm. uh, as we go along. So instead of our normal sign-off this week, um, I just want to thank you, Miles, for chatting with me. Uh, and then we're going to take it over to Digger, and we'll have him kind of lead us out with the story of his uh, for this episode. Perfect. At the end of the summer, we used to like to torment Doug Bouchard at some fun. And by tormenting him, I mean, we would go, I'll give you an example, we would all go up and ride the bumper cars. But the idea was when the bumper cars stopped and we were supposed to get off of them, none of us would get off of them. And literally they would chase us around until they had to shut the power off because nobody would get out of their car. And then we would be banned from some fun for two or three days or whatever. Also then Doug put in a railroad. Only Doug Bouchard would put in a railroad too close to the road. He got in trouble, put a railroad in. And our plan was we were going to get 
hide in the woods, and rob the trains. Once we had all the tourists' wallet and watches, they would assume they would get them back when they got to the station. But Doug had nothing to do with the robbery, so he would have no idea who robbed the train. Unfortunately, we never did rob the train. One of my best memories of getting Doug crazy was when he put in the water slide. Our breakfast club, he kept telling Bob Picard, the superintendent of schools in Marinette, and me how he wanted us because of our uh, svelte bodies to be the first guys down the hill. Well, we got to the water hill, but everyone was going down it already. So we weren't the first guys. Got the camera all set up. We had no idea that you went over, paid for a raft, and rented it. We just walked over to a lady and her kids and said, can we borrow this raft? And away we went. And we have a famous picture of us coming down the water slide. And one of the quotes was, we looked like uh, chipping whales instead of chipping dales coming down the hill. And, and Doug kept going, I can't believe you took that raft. Don't you know you rent them? We had no idea. And we have the, the picture, I still have the picture today in my office. These stories and more will be available in this week's issue of the Peninsula Pulse, available throughout Door County. For more headlines, visit DoorCountyPulse.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast for your weekly Pulse picks, interviews, and exclusive content from the Peninsula Pulse. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.